21, Acts 21. We'll pray for the Spirit's guidance. Our Lord and our God, as we open your book of life, I just pray that, that you give us a measure of maturity that we didn't have when we came here. I pray, O oh Lord, that, that your Holy Spirit is pleased to bless us, O oh Lord, and I pray that I represent you properly in this text. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 21, and I'll read a few, few of the verses, then we'll get into it. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. And there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. You may be seated. You know, as we look, we're looking again at Paul's missionary journeys. He's going from place to place now, strengthening the churches, educating the elders and deacons on these young churches how to act, how to discipline, how to carry on, because he's looking at the transfer of his influence, the transfer of the apostolic era of the beginning of the church to the regular means of the church, the church where there are elders and deacons. And they would be carrying it on after these apostles were gone. And, you know, these apostles would be picked off one by one, martyred, all except John. And I think they all knew that. They had to pass that torch on to the regular means of the church, which is what we have here today, elders and deacons, the overseers of the church. So Paul is going around answering the questions to these churches, speaking to them, and you can see the love that the people had toward Paul. And we'll go back to Acts 20 toward the end. You know, there they, they were weeping, they were sorrowful. You know, in, in verse 36, it tells us, and when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, similar to what he did here. This was when he was leaving Ephesus with the Ephesian elders. There was much weeping 
on the part of all, they embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken that he would not see his, they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. They were sad. You know, this is how it played out time and time again. I think at each one of these, they were sad as Paul was departing. Great sorrow, great lamentation. In particular, where many of them, he was probably telling them the same thing, that you won't see me again. This is it. So when it says in in Acts 21, the first verse, and when we had parted from them and set sail... You know, in the original text, it's a little clearer where it says it would be, as we would say, when we were torn away from him and from them and had set sail. Torn away. There was a great bond between these believers, and there should be a great bond between all believers. Church leaders, different churches. I know as for Sal and I have been going to classes, there's more and more bond with the men over there, more and more respect, more and more fellowship. And we see how solid they are in the faith. And that's all believers. You know, when our loved ones go off to school, that's similar. It should be a tearing. We know there's, they have their duty to do, but there's also a sadness that they won't be close to us anymore. And I think here, particularly with the successful ministries that they were having, they didn't want to lose Paul. They liked his influence. They were leaning on him. They would now have to lean on the Holy Spirit to help them navigate the churches, just as we do here now. And Luke, as usual, he gives kind of an itinerary of Paul's travels. First they go to Kos. These first few places where they go, these are, are cities with shallow harbors. So they would take what they called the coastal or coasting vessels, smaller ships. They'd go to these villages and towns with the shallow harbors. They didn't have the big harbors, the deep harbors for the big ships. So they'd have to stay close to shore. These ships would carry smaller cargoes, kind of like our Amazon trucks driving around. And the big ships would be like the semis. So it says, we came by a straight course to coast. You know, what I like about all these places, you can look at history and find a lot of things, interesting things about these places. These are real places. Kos is where there was a, a great hospital started by Hippocrates. From there, they went to Rhodes. You know, in these movies, they show this big statue of this guy with one leg on each side of the river. Entering a harbor, well, there was a statue like that at Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. By the time Paul was there, the earthquake had taken it out. 
But it's interesting, these are all places, all where historic, historians mention outside of the scriptures. And from Rhodes to Patera, there they had a famous oracle, pagan oracle. But it shows the idolatry in these cities. Yet Paul is going to each of these places and finding converts. It's amazing. But I like the history of it because it ties it in. These are real places. It gives the validity to the scriptures. The Patara, that was a deep harbor village or town. So then they went on one of these bigger ships. It says, and from there to Patara, and having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. We had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left. We sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Tyre throughout history was a port city. But isn't it amazing Paul finds disciples in Tyre? Busy port city with a lot of vices that travelers like. In the Old Testament, we, hear, we read time and time again of the judgment of Tyre. You know, in Ezekiel 26, just as an example, verse 15, Thus says the Lord God to Tyre, Will not the coastlands shake at the sounds of your fall when the wounded groan, when the slaughter is made in your midst? And remember the words of Jesus in Matthew. Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. Now in Chorazon and Bethsaida, that's where Jesus did most of his miracles in that area. And they rejected him. And people knew that Tyre and Sidon were wicked cities. They came under judgment in the past. That God, Jesus is saying, it'll be better for them. Better for these wicked cities. What we learn from this, though, is that when the gospel is preached, even in these wicked cities, when the whole law of God is given, even cities that have been judged before and judged again for their wickedness, when the Holy Spirit brings you to places like that and you preach the whole counsel of God, Souls are still plucked out of these cities. Paul finds believers in Tyre. So who set the gospel seed in Tyre? Mark 7.31, speaking of Jesus, then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. Jesus preached 
entire. And I believe this was the result of that preaching. And Paul went there, found brothers. And having sought out the disciples, he stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Here we have some interesting text to work through. Notice these disciples, through the Spirit, by the influence of the Holy Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Yet in verse 22 of chapter 20, we read, And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. This is Paul speaking, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction awaits me. Seems like a contradiction. Is the Spirit telling Paul to go, and he's telling these other people, tell Paul not to go? No. The Holy Spirit was telling these guys, informing these guys, what was going to happen to Paul. The Holy Spirit was not telling them to tell Paul not to go. It was out of their own love for Paul that they didn't want him to go and suffer these things. They were wrong in their love, just as Peter was wrong when he said to Jesus, heaven forbid, we won't let you go to Jerusalem to get crucified. It was out of love. But in that case, it was wrong as well. Because Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. What he was saying is, Peter, you're hindering my work. It's not a contradiction. Paul knew from well long ago, from his conversion, how much he would suffer for Jesus Christ. And this is the way the Holy Spirit is letting the church know. Letting the church know that this is God's will. That Paul will testify in Jerusalem. He will testify in front of rulers. He will go. We continue on. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board ship, and they returned home. Again, the unity of believers. So important. So important. They don't want Paul to leave. They love Paul. Now, Paul was there because he was looking for, toward the next generation to carry on the gospel message, carry on the church. But notice these saints, they're doing it right. Their children are accompanying them, their wives. Very important lesson. Anything we do for the Lord, our children should be at our side, learning, watching being taught from young on. Very important. Our children must get the taste of battle in their face. That some people hate the church, hate Christians, hate righteousness. I know from young on, we'd go to the protests 
hold the signs up for the preborn. The young girls got used to being swore at, cussed at from a young age. That people hated them just for standing up for righteousness. That's a good thing. Because it's reality. But they're with their wives and their children. They were with them. Paul is compelled to go to Jerusalem. But also, I think there's a practical reason when we look at this, and some scholars believe so as well. Remember in 1 Corinthians 16.16, now it says here, concerning the collection for the saints as I directed the church in Galatia, so you also are to do on the first day of every week. Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that those will, will be no, so there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you have accredited by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I shall go also, they will accompany me. Here we have a few points. Remember, they took up that collection for Jerusalem. Paul was instructing the churches that the Jerusalem saints were in need, perhaps because of the persecution, perhaps because of the famine that this Agabus had predicted in, I think it was Acts 16. But also, we hear that men would be accompanying these gifts, and they were accompanying Paul. Paul did decide to go. In Romans 1, 5, or 15, we read, At present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Archaea have been placed, pleased to make some contribution for the poor poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Boy, what a sentence, huh? When we receive spiritual blessings, we are obligated to give out our material blessings to those in need. That makes the spiritual blessings real to the people around us. That makes us productive so we have material blessings to give to others. Part of the reason Paul wanted to get to Jerusalem, I think there was a real need there. Yeah, he wanted to get there for Pentecost, celebrate it. But just think what the unity this would bring, material gifts from the Gentiles to the Jews. Because in Jerusalem, it was mostly a Jewish Christian church. Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. These contributions would be coming from the Gentiles. Remember, there still was a lot of dissension, I guess, between the Jews and the Gentiles. Yeah, on paper it was solved. They had meetings. They solved it. They said, no, 
This is how it's going to be. We're going to get together. But it still doesn't change the hearts of every man or woman. But here, if you're receiving gifts from somebody that you perceive as an enemy or a threat, it will bring unity to the church. Very important. It will bring more peace among the brethren. Paul knew these churches had to develop that bond of love. Just as we must develop the bond of love between other churches, other believers. When he had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Palamos and were greeted and greeted the brothers and stayed with them one day. Again, notice how Paul finds saints spread all about this journey. It shows how the early church was spreading, how the Holy Spirit was expanding the early church. On the next day we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the Evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. This is an established church they are coming to now here at Caesarea. One of the seven. One of the seven what? Remember when they, the seven deacons, earlier I think it was in Acts 6, they said Philip was a godly man, a mature man, a mature saint. He started out as a deacon, now he was an evangelist, and he went to Caesarea, that was 20 years ago. He was there for 20 years, establishing a church. He was a mature man in the faith. So I think at this church, Paul probably had a little respite. He probably didn't have a lot of things to sort out. He was with established brothers. Philip, in the meantime, he was married. He had four faithful daughters that prophesied. And the scripture doesn't, that's it. We're not told what they prophesied about. We can speculate maybe they were prophesying the same thing, that Paul was going to suffer persecution. But for the most part, the scriptures don't tell us anything else about these four daughters. However, we see the cross-generational effect here of Philip passing the faith down to his daughters. And the church is blessed by them. The church historians, Eusephus and Papias, they record in their writings, in their volumes of early church history, that three of these daughters lived into their 90s. And these historians got directly from them the history of the early church. Again, this all strengthens how accurate the records we have of the church and how it coincides with the Bible. First-hand evidence. Polycarp. You might remember him. He was martyred in his old age. He was discipled as a young boy by John when he was in his 90s. 
So our church history is passed on person to person and accurate. Polycarp, he was martyred in his 90s. They said, while you're 90 years old, we really don't want to martyr you because they, they felt that Christians were atheists. So they told him, just deny the, deny the atheist. And he looked at the Roman leader and said, I deny you. <laughs> the Roman leader cut his head off, or burned him, killed him. But he stayed true to the faith. But he was discipled by John. Tells us while we are staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Again, we heard about him in Acts 11. He foretold about a famine. Now he's here to foretell about Paul's future. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Again, this wasn't for Paul's knowledge. Paul knew this. But this is a picture, a picture story, a demonstration for the people there, the church leaders there, what was going to happen to Paul. In the Old Testament, we see where this picture, picture stories. Isaiah, he had to walk through the streets naked. I think it was Elisha or Elijah. He ripped his robe when he said, you know, the kingdoms will be divided. It's for emphasis. But again, Paul knew this. He knew this. And, you know, we go back to Acts 20, verse 22. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. Paul knew the road was going to get rough, just as Jesus did when he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. But Agabus is not telling Paul not to go. He's just telling them what will happen there. But some of Paul's travelers, they got the wrong impression. They looked at it different. Even Luke. Because he says, when we heard this, we, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Not to go up. Don't go, Paul. Don't go. This is going to be bad for you. It's just like Peter telling Jesus, forbid it. Again, this is not a malicious act trying to interfere with Paul's calling. It's out of love, but it is still miss. It's wrong. And Paul tells him that. And Paul answered, what are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. You know, Paul sets the record straight. He is called to testify in Jerusalem. He knows his calling. He knows his task that God had assigned him before the beginning of time. He knows what it is. The Holy Spirit has made it clear to him. 
And he will run the race. He will complete the task like he told Timothy when he's in prison. It's God's will that he goes. It's God's will that he goes. You know, but isn't that how we are? How at times our love for people around us can interfere with their duty? I know when I was young, my dad was in the National Guard, the sergeant. They were called up for the Cuban Missile Crisis. And I remember we walked on the train station. It was only a block away. I remember him leaving with all the other men from his unit. And we all didn't want him to go. We were telling him we didn't want him to go. But it was his duty to go. But isn't that how we are? Years later, when I was talking to my mom, she says, you know, when he went, he had a deferral. He didn't have to go. He had nine children. They said, you don't have to go. And his answer was, I have nine children. That's why I am going. His duty was to go and be with his men. He felt he was protecting his children by going. But what about us if our children say, we want to go to a mission field or we want to do this or that, and we fear for their lives, it's dangerous. Do we interfere with them? We should encourage them. Encourage them. Just like these disciples realized, and since he could not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. You know, there are times when we look at this world, we look at circumstances, and we can't see clearly through the fog, through the propaganda, through the lies. And it comes to where we must say, let the will of the Lord be done. If we have a child that's heart-sent and going on a mission field, if they feel they're being called across the country, I guess at the end we must say, let the Lord's will be done. Even if it does break our heart. Goes on, after these days we got ready and went up to Jerusalem, and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. You know, isn't it amazing that wherever these guys go, God is providing for them places to stay, places to lodge, companions. Another great lesson for us, we're not in this battle alone. God will always bring men and women alongside us to fight these fights, to stand up for Christ. There's many brothers and sisters in this world who love the Lord that we don't know and someday we'll meet. And we'll have that instant bond of love. I know when I traveled in Mexico and Belize and Panama, there's a bond as soon as you meet other believers. It's that Holy Spirit that goes through all of us that is the source of that bond. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. 
On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, Great time of fellowship, great time in rejoicing of the church growth. These brothers were happy. But at the end, and they said to him, that's a big but. They're saying, but Paul, now we'll have to wait till the next sermon. So what do we learn from this? I think the greatest lesson we learn is our faithfulness and the preaching of the law of God, the full counsel of God, irregardless of the circumstances, brings believers into the church. Paul was faithful wherever he went in any circumstance. He not only preached to the poor and the needy, but also to kings and rulers. The word of God has no bounds on who can be converted. The only limitation is if we do not preach the whole counsel of God. I contrast what I see here in Acts as these disciples are in far worse situations many times than we are and yet souls are converted and they stick to it. The church grows. And in reading the numbers in America today, the church numbers are decreasing. There's many conversions that last a year, two years, and they fall away from the faith. So we have to look at the source. What are we doing wrong? And I believe it all goes to where Paul says he is guilty of no man's blood because he preached the whole counsel of God, the law and the gospel. And as I read the sayings from people like Spurgeon, Wesley, the times of revival, the same thing. They pretty much say, don't even give them the gospel if you're not going to give them the law. It's worthless. You'll have false converts. Did God have a good plan for Paul's life? Come to Jesus. He has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, he has a wonderful plan. We will spend eternity with him and we are forgiven our sins and when we're forgiven our sins everything else is pretty much meaningless like Paul says his life doesn't mean anything. He knows that his guilt has been removed. Paul had a wonderful life for Christ but it was not a wonderful plan as we would look at it. Just read how many times he was shipwrecked, beaten, stoned. Try that as a gospel message. Come to Jesus and you may be beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, lashed, what, seven times? 
That's a better message than God has a good plan for your life. God has forgiveness for your soul. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, as we continue on in our walk with you, teach us to understand the full law. Let us not be guilty of any man's blood that we have not proclaimed the whole truth of God. The world hated you, and you tell us the world will hate us. And any time we as believers go on the offense, try to take ground for you, the wicked will rise up and try to oppress us, twist our words, demean us, as we will see that happens to Paul. Teach us, O Lord, to run the race, to complete the race, because we love you and we look at the cross and that our sins have been forgiven, that we recognize our guilt that the price is paid by Jesus Christ. Amen.